So we're doing Core 52 on Sunday nights, which is uh, a book that I've encouraged some of you to get if you'd like to do so. Uh, the, the idea behind Core 52 is, what are the 52 verses that if we could master them, it would help us better understand the entire Bible? And so that's what we're doing on Sunday nights throughout this year. This entire year will be focused on Core 52, learning those Core 52 verses. And I told you previously that <clears throat> we're trying to take two lessons each Sunday night, that is two lessons from that Core 52 book, sometimes the lessons will be related to one another, sometimes not. Uh, tonight, the lessons are going to be a little bit related. You'll see that towards the end of the study, how they are really actually connected. Uh, but I just didn't want you to be confused, because tonight we're going to be talking about finding happiness, and we're also going to be talking about uh, prophecy. And you may wonder, well, how could those two things be related? And again, these are just two of the chapters in the book, so they're not necessarily intertwined, but there is some correlation between those two. And I'll show you that when we get towards the end. <clears throat> so, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to pray with me and pray for me. And then we're going to jump into Core 52 tonight, talking about finding happiness. And then also, uh, if we have time, talking about prophecy. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we're grateful for who you are in our lives. We're grateful for what you do for us and the word that you've given to us. <clears throat> I pray that tonight your teacher would be our guide. You, you would give us the instruction we need. I pray that for your Holy Spirit, Father, to speak um, in a clear and powerful way, that it would be undeniable that it's you. Uh, so may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable to you. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Just, I pray, God, just take the word, open it to us, direct us, uh, I pray, into the truth of your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, the core verse we want to start out with is found in Psalm 1. And I've listed it on your notes there, uh, verse 2. I'm going to actually read verses 1 and 2, but open God's Word with me to Psalm 1. Of course, the first, first psalm uh, is, a, is an introduction to the entire psalms. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But let me just read this with you. In fact, if you have the NIV translation, I would ask that you read this out loud with me, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you have the NIV, or verses 1 through 3, let's say verses 1 through 3, if you have the NIV. Let's read this together out loud. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. <clears throat> so the core verse we want to look at tonight really is verses 1 and 2, but I put on your notes verse 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So as we're talking about finding happiness, here's where I want to start. Put this on your notes. Happiness is a universal human quest. Happiness is a universal human quest. 
That is, we're all in search of happiness. And I don't care how old you are or how young you are. You're in search of happiness. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or if you're not a Christian. You are in search of happiness. And I don't care how much you have or you don't have. All of us are in search of happiness. In fact, there's a Bible in the book. Uh, or a Bible in the book. A book in the Bible. There's a book in the Bible dedicated to this quest for happiness. The book of Ecclesiastes is the story of one man's search for happiness. It's common for people to, in their pursuit of happiness to make that their primary goal. Let me just give you a word of warning. When happiness becomes your ultimate goal, it becomes your metric for morality. Let me say that one more time. When happiness becomes your ultimate goal, and, and again, we're all on a quest for happiness. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just warning us about our ultimate goal because when happiness becomes your quest, it becomes your ultimate goal, then all of a sudden happiness becomes your metric for morality. Too often people make decisions of what's right and wrong based on what makes them happy rather than whether it's right or wrong. We tend to determine what's right by what feels right. Cheryl Crow, she has that famous song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I agree with the author of our book, the Core 52 book, that says, listen, this is what he said, and I'm quoting him. He said, 100% of the time when people say God wants me to be happy, they're about to make a tragic mistake, usually in their marriage. I've seen that as pastor. 100% of the time when somebody said to me, God wants me to be happy, they're about to make a tragic mistake. But happiness has become their ultimate pursuit, their ultimate goal. Finding happiness has become the thing that they want most in life. And again, I want to say one more time, there's nothing wrong in pursuing happiness, but you have to make sure it's not your ultimate goal. As you can imagine, the Bible has a lot to say about happiness. And Psalm 1 is perhaps one of the most important subjects on, or important passages on that subject. It opens with a key word. It's it's intriguing to me. We may spend a few minutes here, uh, so I'm not sure how far we're going to get through all of this, but I just want to stop at Psalm 1 and the very first word of Psalm 1. What is the very first word of Psalm 1? Yeah, <clears throat> I know we had a conversation here. I can't remember if it was a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. About, do you say blessed or blessed? Uh, and I actually looked that up this week because I remember that conversation after I was reading this again. And it actually, you can say either based on the context, whether it's an adjective or, you know, all these other things. All, so, so I don't know if you say blessed is the man or blessed is the man. But I want you to look at this word blessed. I'm going to use the word blessed. Psalm 1, verse 1, the first word. The Bible opens with this word blessed, or the Psalms open with this word blessed. This is a key word. You don't have a place to, to fill in some blanks here, but I want you to find a, a blank spot on your paper, maybe on the back or something, and, and I want you to write down some things that, that might help you with this word blessed. Let's get a little deep on that word. <clears throat> the word blessed is the Hebrew word asher, esher actually, esher. Uh, the transliteration would be this in English. 
E-S-H-E-R, E-S-H-E-R, Esher. The word blessed, Esher, is the Hebrew word. It's used 44 times in the Old Testament. 44 times in the Old Testament. 26 of those times are in the book of Psalms. So the Psalms have a lot to say about Esher. The Psalms have a lot to say about happiness or blessed or blessed. So, let me me talk to you about what that word means. The word blessed that you see in verse 1, the Hebrew word esher, literally means happy. That's a simple translation. Happy. Or, if you want to write this down, let me give you a a little broader definition. A A heightened state of happiness and joy resulting from God's work in our life. A heightened sense of happiness and joy resulting from God working in our lives. Maybe you could say it this way. Asher, or Esher, or blessed, happy, that the Psalms begin with, is a word that indicates when God is doing a work in you, that's where you find true happiness. Does that make sense? That, that the real joy we're longing for, the real joy we're looking for, comes from our Heavenly Father and His work in us. And so the Bible uses this word. The Bible has this important Hebrew word, esher, happy. It's this heightened sense of happiness and joy. Now, let me give you another word <clears throat> from the New Testament. It's the word makarios. This is a Greek word. And, and I'll put all this together for you. Just be patient with me. Makarios. Let me, let me spell that for you. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. Makarios. Makarios is a very similar word. Very similar to the Old Testament word, Esher. Makarios is used, uh, for example, in the first book of the New Testament, in the book of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, blessed are you, happy are you, for example, just take a moment real quick, Uh, go to Matthew 5, let me show you what I'm talking about, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 3, Matthew 5, 3, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. I love verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see, or they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Here's my point. When you see this word makarios, and and what you'll find is it's very similar to what you see in the Old Testament. Makarios is this, this idea, this state of being blessed by God. And because of what God is doing in my life, I experience joy and happiness. Makarios. Now, the reason I'm telling you about these, these words and this Greek word is because when you go back to Psalm, go back to Psalm 1, 
When you go to Psalm 1, back in uh, Psalm 1, you see that word blessed. It's very similar to the same concept in the New Testament. Now, why does that matter for you and me? Well, let's talk about how to have a happy life. Let's talk about, at least from this Psalm's perspective, what is it that we need in order to have this happiness, this, you might want to write these words down, God's favor, God's favor. What is it that you need in order to experience God's favor? Because when you experience God's favor, you experience God's blessing, you experience happiness. So what is it that we need? Put this on your notes. Look on on your outline there. Happiness, first of all, is based on good choices. Based on good choices. If I could give anybody advice as a pastor, it would be be careful that you make the right choices. You've, You've done that for your kids, haven't you? You teach your kids, you taught them as they were growing up the importance of making right choices. What kind of choices did you warn them about? Just talk to me real quick. What kind of choices did you make sure they make good choices in? Friends. Who said friends? Friends. Why is, why is the choice of your friends important? Yes. All right, friends, what else? Driving? Absolutely. What else? Relationships? Huh? Being truthful? Let me see if you would agree with this. Our lives are largely shaped by the choices we make. Isn't that true? The good choices and the bad choices. Our lives are shaped. I was just thinking, I think it was yesterday. Yesterday or day before. Um... Somebody this week had asked me about the possibility of, of going back to my alma mater, Carson Newman University, and preaching at their chapel. Now, we haven't lined that up yet, but they were just inquiring about that. And that's what got me thinking about Carson Newman. And then I, I thought about, how did I even end up at Carson Newman? Well, where, where I grew up in East Tennessee, if you were a preacher boy and you are going to go into the ministry, you went to Carson Newman. I mean, it wasn't really... I really, I was thinking back on, I really didn't choose it as much as that's just the obvious choice, all right? But I got to thinking about this. Now, I don't know if your brain ever works like this. If not, please forgive me for being so stupid. But I got to thinking about, you know, what if I had gone to some other college or university? Then the dominoes started going. I wouldn't have met Lisa. Let me back up. What if I had not surrendered to ministry? What if I had become an architect? Like, that was my original plan. Well, I wouldn't have gone to Carson Newman. And I wouldn't have met Lisa. And I wouldn't have gotten married to her. And I wouldn't have Kelly or Lauren or Jonathan. And I wouldn't have the world's greatest grandbaby. And I started going down this down this trail of all the things that would be different based on one choice where I went to school and based on that one choice of where I went to school that choice determined a lot of the other choices that I made in life so here's here's what the psalmist is trying to tell us 
Choices are a powerful thing. We're going to look at the text in a moment. Put this on your notes. Choices are a powerful thing. First of all, they determine the direction of our lives. The friends you choose, the morals you choose, the lifestyle you choose, the vocation you choose, the marriage you choose, all of that determines the direction of your life. Number two, they're powerful things because they determine the depth of our relationship with God. Your choices, good and bad, determine the kind of relationship you have with God. And then number three, choices are powerful because they determine the destiny of our lives. I'm thankful tonight, I hope you can say this, I'm thankful tonight that I'm going to heaven because of a choice I made when I was 11 years old. Determines the destiny of my life. So, the, psalm, the psalmist is going to make a case here that the choices we make are very important. Listen to me, church. You're not just the product of your environment. You're not just the product of your past. You are the product of your choices. And in this psalm, the, the psalmist contrasts the life of those who choose a life wholly committed to God and those who don't. So, let's read the text in verse 1. <clears throat> blessed is the man, happy, joyful. God's favor is on him. However you'd like to translate that word, Esher. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. He begins in verse 1 by talking about making some definite refusals. He says, first of all, he does not walk does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now that word walk, put this on your notes somewhere, that word walk means to follow after. To follow after the counsel, the instruction of the wicked. He said the, the man that is truly blessed by God, the man who can experience God's favor, the man who can experience the joy and happiness that God provides is a man who does not follow after the counsel of the wicked. Or... Then he uses the word stand, which means to get involved with. To get involved with. Stand in the way of sinners. In other words, I'm not standing around with them. Or sit in the seat of mockers. And that word sit means to become one of. To become one of. You know what I've seen, church, see if you agree with this, and maybe you can even put names to this. I don't want you to do that publicly, but you, you might even be able to put names to this. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen folks who just did not really want to make some definite denials in their life, and their downfall could be traced to the fact that they want Christ, but they want everything that the world has to offer too? They're not, they're not willing to make some denials in their life they're not willing to make some hard choices in their life they somehow think that the christian life is a cafeteria line i'll take a little of this and a little of that and a little of this it's kind of a buffet christian life's not a buffet christian life is is a relationship with the lord god and and because of my relationship with the lord god sometimes i have to be careful who i'm listening to who i'm standing around who i'm following who i'm engaged with Happiness 
It's what we're talking about. Happiness is a result of a right relationship with God. And if I'm going to be in a right relationship with God, sometimes I'll have to make some refusals and not be in a relationship with others. Now, this is a challenge. Would you agree this is a challenge to do that in the day and times in which we live? It's a continual challenge. I want you to notice this, this idea of daily walking, standing, and sitting. Walking, standing, and sitting. If you were to look at this in the Hebrew text, the tense there is a perfect tense, which means it's ongoing. It's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. It's, an, it's, it's every day. It's never ending. At, at every age, we still have this comprehensive, continuous challenge to make sure that I'm not being misled by those around me. Our choices are important. But let me get to number two because this is the heart of what I want to talk to you about. Number two on your notes there. Our choices are based on whatever is the center of our lives. What is the center of our lives? All of us. Look up here for a minute. Everybody. All of us. Your life is centered on something. Obviously, I mean by that, that each of us has something that's so important to us that everything in our lives is affected by that thing. Whatever is at the center of your life is what you'll depend on for security, for self-sufficiency, and for guidance. Whatever is the center of your life. Whatever is at the center of your life is what's most important to you. The psalmist is going to make the case, if you want to be blessed, the first word of that psalm, if you want to experience this happiness, this joy, this favor of God in your life, then what is the center of your life? What's the center of your life? So let's look and see what he says. <clears throat> Verse 2. Notice what was the center of the life for this man mentioned in Psalm 1. But his delight is in what, church? The law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. There's both a, a negative and a positive dimension to the Christian life. The negative dimension in verse 1 don't, don't stand, uh, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of mockers. Then there's the positive dimension, and that is your delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law you meditate day and night. Uh, what's, what's your life centered on? Let me give you four things. These are not on your notes, but let me give you four things that I've seen as pastor that people often center their life on. I'm not saying these are, are evil, but I'm saying they're not the best thing to center your life on. Here's the four things that I've seen people center their life on. One is they center their life on their job. They're workaholics. They're driven to produce. And their job takes first priority over everything. They're job-centered. Now, I know you've got to make a living. I know you have to have a job. I know you have to be committed to the job. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about some people, their lives are centered on their job. And everything else revolves around, takes second place 
to their job. Number two, some people are money-centered. Money-centered. Again, you've got to have money to live. I get that. I know that. But nearly everything in their life is, is, is gauged by the bottom line. How much will it put in my pocket or keep in my pocket? And, and everything, that they, they become what Jesus talks about. Uh, they become greedy because they're, they're so money-centered. Some people, and this is going to sound bad, I don't, mean, I don't mean this bad, but it's going to sound hard for some of you. Some people are family-centered. Now, I love my family. I'm a family-centered person. I, I grew up in a wonderful family. I have a wonderful family now. I, I, just, I just absolutely adore my family. But listen to me, my life cannot be centered on my family. Or it shouldn't be. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? It's a healthy thing to have a healthy family. I get that. But you cannot make your family the center of your existence. Or you should not, I should say. Let me give you the fourth one. And this is one that would be easy for you to relate to. The fourth one is friend-centered. This is especially true for younger people. Being accepted, belonging to the group, peer acceptance, becomes the driving force of their lives. And what I found, I, I bet you found this too, it's easier to see your center than it is for me to see mine. These are for me to see what's important to you, and I can have blind spots about what's important to me. Here's the reason I say you shouldn't build your life on, on those four things. Because the time will come when life will test what's at your center. I hear that. We're talking about happiness. The time will come when life will test what is at your center. And the question will be this, is it a good foundation? Will it stand? Will it produce what you thought it would produce? The happiness you thought it would bring? Let me show you something and uh, put your finger there and go with me to uh, finger in Psalm 1. Uh, I'm trying to find the text. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore everyone, this is Jesus speaking of course, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man, or it was like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now stop there, you know, this, you know this text, but let's just put it in context for a moment. Jesus said, I want to tell you something. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, this person is like a, a what kind of a man? Read it, what kind of man? A wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, here is a man who is God-centered. Jesus said, here's a man who hears these words of mine, and he puts them into practice. He's God-centered. He's not family-centered. He's not job-centered. He's not uh, money-centered. He's not friend-centered. He is centered. 
his, the center of his life is God. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus said, this is a wise man who is God-centered. And then look what happens, verse 25. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a, what kind of a man, church? Foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I want you to go back to Psalm now. Let me show you something in Psalm 1. Jesus said, remember in verse 2, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then he said in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Here is a person. Here is a person that... De- despite the circumstances that are around him, is experiencing the blessings of the Word of God in his life. Despite the circumstances around him. Remember, we are the product of our choices. And so, here's the verse I want you to focus on, this core verse before we move into prophecy. Here's the core verse I want you to see. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. A God-centered life, listen, write this down, there's no blank, but just write it down. A God-centered life is a Bible-centered life. A God-centered life is a Bible-centered life. And in our quest for happiness... It is so easy to get away from God's Word. In our quest for happiness with our family, for happiness with, on our job, for happiness with our money, for happiness with friends, in our quest for happiness, it is so easy to get away from a God-centered life. But this book, this book will tell you how to live the blessed life. This book will tell you how you can have God's favor on your life. Uh, I've hesitated to say this because I see her sitting back here, but I want to tell you about a man in our church, in my first church. Mia is back here. I want to talk about her dad for a moment. Uh, Mia Lyons was in my first church uh, in Lenore, North Carolina. I married her and Gary how many years ago? Okay. Uh, so when I was pastor in Lenore, North Carolina, Crestview Baptist Church, she was a member of that church. I married her and Gary. Her daddy is in heaven now. Her daddy, uh, his name is John Riggs. He was one of my deacons. Which is pretty cool. Her daddy was a, her mom, too. Her mom's still living. Her daddy was 
just a great man of God, a Gideon. And he loved the Word of God. It was a great encouragement to a young pastor starting out in his first church. When I first started at, at Mount Airy, not at Mount Airy, when I first started at uh, Crestview, I was 26 years old. Just out of school. And John Riggs, her dad, John Riggs, was one of my deacons, and he would talk to me as a young pastor about the value of this book. And he said to me something I've never forgotten. And, and it's not just what he said, but it was how he said it. It was the conviction that he had that impacted me as much as what he said. But what he said was this. He said, Pastor, every, and he, had a, he had the Bible. He said, everything I know about God, I know from that book. And just again, just the passion that he said it with. And you know, that's been 30, 40 years ago. Or probably 30 years ago or 35 years ago. I still remember that. I still remember as a young pastor seeing this man, everything I know about God, I learned from this book. And as a young pastor, I thought, it's the way I want to be. I had been in college and I'd been in seminary. I had studied a lot. I had degrees. I didn't have the passion that he had in this book. And John Riggs was always an encouragement to me that this is your source of peace. This is your source of happiness. This is where you develop your relationship with God. So, in the last few minutes, kind of an awkward thing, but I want to switch gears and talk about prophecy. But there is some relation. There, it is related, believe it or not, to some degree. And I've given you all of my notes, so there's no fill in the blanks here. You have the same notes that I have related to prophecy. But here's the first thing I want you to notice. When we're talking about prophecy, the core verse that, that, that they suggested and the core verse we're using tonight is in the very next psalm. Psalm 1 talks about the Word of God. And then the very next psalm, Psalm 2, is about prophecy. And in fact, the core verse is chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today, I have become your father now, if you just read Psalm 2, you probably just looking at it and think, I, I, don't, I don't get why that's so important. But you need to understand that Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. I don't, you don't have a, uh, any blanks to fill out, but you can underline there on your notes there. I think there's a statement that says Psalm 2, uh, verse 7, is just one of dozens of major messianic prophecies that identified who the Savior, King, would be and what he would do. 
And it's interesting that when you look at this psalm, it's, there's not just one messianic prophecy in it. That is a prophecy about the Messiah. But there's actually three. I want to read the entire psalm with you. And uh, I'm going to read it in this fashion. I'm going to read it in sections. All right. So verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, verses 1 and 2, I've put this on your notes. Again, I want you to have all the notes. Verses 1 and 2 are actually cited in the believer's prayer uh, in Acts 4, 25 and 26. Uh, in other words, when, when Peter was speaking in Acts chapter 4, was it, Acts, was it 4? Yeah. When Peter was speaking in Acts chapter 4, guess what? I mean, he was talking about the Lord Jesus. He referred back to Psalm 2. And he referred to this as a messianic reference. That this was a reference, verses 1 and 2, this was a reference to Jesus, a reference to the Messiah. Then we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Again, if you just take the time to study this, you would find, and this is all in the book, Core 52, uh, that Psalm or verse 7 is paraphrased in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all quote verse 7 or, or paraphrase it. And, and it's interesting, at, his, at the Lord's baptism, God speaks in an, in an audible voice to the crowd, and he paraphrases verse 7. It's also interesting, at the transfiguration, God used this verse again. This must be an important verse to God. If God spoke the verse in, in the book of Psalms, and then at the Lord's baptism, He spoke the verse audibly, and then at the transfiguration of Jesus, God used this verse again. In fact, God only speaks audibly three times in the Bible, or during Jesus' ministry, I should say, and two of those three times, He uses this one verse. Messianic reference. And then... For those Revelation fans in the audience, Jamie, in Revelation, I'm sorry, verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. We just read that and say, what does that mean? But if you start looking at it from the, from the book of Revelation, you'll find, and I've put it there on your notes, that this verse, verse 9, is cited three times in Revelation. So three different sections of Psalm 2 are messianic prophecies about Jesus and spoken, watch this, repeatedly through the Bible. Repeatedly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, at his, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and in the book of Revelation three times this psalm is mentioned. Now, the reason I spent a few time, a few minutes like that just really trying to help you understand the power of the psalm is because I want you to see how it ends. 
This is so intriguing to me, how the psalm ends. Let's start at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Be God-centered. Verse 12. Kiss the Son, and put this on your... Well, I think I've got it on your notes, don't I? The word kiss there means it's a sign of submission. Kiss the Son. A sign of submission, like you would kiss the ring of someone submitting to them as your ruler. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. And then look at the last sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm of prophecy ends by saying, you want to know how you find happiness? Take refuge in Him. Center your life in Him. Center your heart in Him. That's our quest for happiness. Happiness, to some degree, certainly can be found in Many different things. Happiness can be found in lots of different places, lots of different things, to some degree. But the happiness your soul most longs for is found in Him. If you don't believe that, go home and find in the Old Testament this book called Ecclesiastes. And you'll see this search for something other than than what this world has to offer. Amen? Amen. Father, you are so good to us, and we're so grateful for who you are, for reminding us that really, your word, your son, is the source of all contentment and happiness that we desire. We pray for your favor. We pray, God, for, for your uh, joy, we pray for your happiness in our lives as we center our lives on you. If our heart is centered on anything or anyone else, show us that. Show us how to center our lives on you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.